Welcome to Fundraising Fundamentals. This is the Chronicle of Philanthropy's monthly podcast. I'm Tony Martinetti. This month, small shop versus big shop. Which is more suited to your personality and career plans? My guest is Roger Craver, the agitator. He's legendary, if you've heard the legend. His career spans over 40 years, and he's helped launch or build organizations like Common Cause, the National Organization for Women, the American Civil Liberties Union, Sierra Club, Greenpeace, Amnesty International, and dozens of others. He's a lawyer by training, but that was a long, long time ago. Welcome, Roger Craver. Thanks, Tony. It's great to be with you. Pleasure to talk to you again. We're talking uh, small shop versus big shop. You've been in both. You've been in some small shops that turn into big shops. Um, If someone has a sort of an entrepreneurial spirit, they would, uh, I would think, be suited more for a small shop. Well, as a general rule, yes, uh, you have much more range of uh, of necessity, which uh, which breeds entrepreneurism, and you also have uh, the ability to be far more lim- uh, nimble, flexible to do far many things. The uh, the downside is in a small shop, you don't uh, always have the resources or specialization needed to do some of the entrepreneurial things. But you know, Tony, one of the one of the real paradoxes in big shops versus small shops is that. Uh, Big shops tend to, even though they have the resources to be entrepreneurial, they, they tend to view the status quo as risk-free, which it isn't. In a changing world, it's the most risky thing you can do, but they, they tend to stick with the status quo, whereas in a small shop, when you have to survive, you learn new things and you do new things. And you don't need uh, layers of bureaucracy above you to, to approve them. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, if I were making a decision... Uh, I would always go with a small shop because uh, for the for a person's future, frankly, I think the best uh, the best fundraising leaders, the best nonprofit leaders, often come out of the small shops because they've had such a such an exposure to a wide range of activities. All right. Well, now we know you're biased. Now, yeah, so you, I'm very biased. All right. Now you're unqualified for the rest of this conversation because you have. <laughs> you have yeah, but Tony, come on. Bias. As you pointed out, I started in small shops. Common Cause, the National Organization for Women, they were all tiny or non-existent when I was with them. No, I know. You're, you're qualified. No, I'm not going to shut your shut your mic off. Don't worry. No, no, you're you're in you're in for the duration. Um, okay. okay. So yes, but if you if you uh, and and specialization too, you're you're more apt to be able to specialize in a big shop. And, and not be asked to, uh, you know, transcend boundaries of what are traditional silos in, in, in fundraising uh, in, a, in a big shop versus a small shop where, you, as you said, you need to be nimble and, and multi, you know, multi-talented. That's right. That's right. I, 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 you know, it, to be stuck in a, in a groove is, is uh, anathema to me, but I do understand the need for specialization. The, pro- the problem is that uh, in, in large organizations, specialization usually turns into rust. That's oh, why yeah. most of them are so paralyzed. They, uh, they tend to adopt so-called best practices and then never deviate or take a chance uh, changing them. That's, uh, that's the main problem. Yeah, well, that's your, your point that uh, they, they consider the status quo only and, and see safety in that. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, but we're, you know, we're evaluating uh, different personalities. Uh, you know, without doing a Myers-Briggs test here, that's, that's for <laughs> up to people, that's up to the listeners to do on their own. But, uh, okay, well, we've captured the, I guess, the entrepreneurial versus the, the more structured and uh, bureaucratized. Um, time with donors. You're going to get more time with donors in a small shop. 
generally you will unless you're in the um, in, in a donor facing position in a larger organization if you if you're in charge of uh, customer or donor service or if you're in uh, major or mid-level giving and are charged with dealing with donors or figuring out donor experiences uh, in in most large organizations, you're you're not going to be uh, uh, involved in donors other than counting them. You're going to be involved in signing purchase orders to do more mail to get more donors, or you're going to be in charge of explaining to the board why you don't have that many new donors or why you're losing old donors. So it tends donors tend to be a statistic in most large uh, organizations unless you are in a position that uh, that forces you to deal with them. Whereas in a small organization, you uh, you not only probably enter the donor's name in the database, you probably are also picking up the phone to thank that donor, or maybe you're organizing an event where you're going to see those donors face-to-face, or perhaps you're sitting down in the evenings writing a birthday card or a thank-you note or what have you with the donors. And, and in a small organization, you, you begin to form relationships with them far far more easily than in a big organization. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm thinking. Uh, I I I said it so quickly that small shop, more time with donors. But uh, you know, I I think I I think I was too hasty with that. Yeah, if you're if you're a frontline fundraiser in a large organization, they're going to expect eighty ninety percent of your time is going to be out with donors and not in the office doing administrative tasks. Absolutely, it should it it absolutely should be. And and uh, th- those organizations that have very successful. Uh, mid-level or major gift programs have gift officers who are very disciplined about their time or they they manage their gift officers they understand exactly how costly it is to make individual calls and they make them as efficiently and as well as possible so uh, it's it's quite a science unto itself in terms of the management of time and resources and in the big shop too because they expect you to be out so much and not burdened with administrative tasks that are not face-to-face meetings with donors, you're going to have resources supporting you. I think in a large shop, you're more apt to have an assistant or you know, maybe a shared assistant who takes care of uh, calendaring for you and administrative things, uh, you know, um, meeting notes and, and recording in the CRM. You're, you're more apt to have that kind of administrative support in a large shop. Yeah, that's, exa- that's exactly right. And you, you hit on a very important point that most even large organizations don't really understand fully, and that is the importance of uh, supporting a gift officer uh, with administrative support. And that includes, uh, as you said, the calendaring. It includes uh, the, the transcription of, uh, of notes, all the stuff that would waste time or take away time from face-to-face meetings or phone conversations with donors. Uh, is a is an extraordinary expense that shouldn't be uh, put on a gift officer. It should be taken over by the administrative part of the organization. And of course, then on the other side of the coin, you know, in a smaller shop, you are going to have bro- possibly broader responsibilities that go beyond your face-to-face time with donors. And so, if 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 time with donors is critical to you. Uh, you know, you might you might prefer the big shop, even with its uh, with its downsides that we identified. No, that that's right. Because you're the chief cook and bottle washer in a small organization. I mean, you may may be meeting with a donor, but then you have to scoot back uh, to the office to fix the copying machine, or to deal with a board member, or to clean the place. Or it, it varies. But uh, there's an awful lot of tasks that uh, fall 
fundraiser in a small organization. Tell us a good story uh, from one of these organizations that you uh, launched or helped build. You know, t- tell one of those early t- tell tell a good early early time well, an story. Early common cause story was yeah. uh, when when we launched it in August of. Uh, of 1970, there wasn't anything in the world called a uh, cashiering operation or a lockbox operation. That had to be figured out. So uh, we, we, we started it by running a full-page ad in the New York Times, and suddenly there were 100,000 coupons. Now, uh, 100,000 things that come in an envelope is a lot, and I had no idea what to, uh, what to do. So uh, I got on the phone and I called the people who had sent checks in from the Washington area, and I asked them to, to come in and help open mail. And so there were our, uh, our first hundred donors uh, sitting at uh, folding tables <laughs> in the evening, opening envelopes and, uh, and processing the mail and writing thank you notes. For right, so right from the get-go at Common Cause, we had, uh, we had the donors uh, building the organization, and we could meet them uh, Face to face, so that was a that was a wonderful experience of getting to know who these people were and why they had joined. The first common cause gift processing office. Exactly, exactly. It, it was donors opening their own envelopes. Yes, yes. <laughs> and nice. often, often commenting, "Well, I know this person," and then I could, as I was sitting there opening mail with them, I said, "Great, could you could you call them and see if they'd host a uh, a party, and we'll uh, we'll go uh, we'll go out to their house and brief some of their friends." So it was a it was also a great recruiting device. And also, I, 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 that's, that's a great way to wrap things up, and so that you know we encourage listeners to not shun. A startup organization that can be exhilarating. Oh, no, the, there can be the great best. experience. They, they are so wonderful. Say more. Come on. No, they really are because you get the you get the passion. I mean, the to, uh, the, the trouble with most nonprofits today, not, not to knock them, except to say that the passion is not there. They, there's an organization that is fifty or sixty or twenty years old has lost its founding fire, has lost the founding spirit. There's nothing, there's nothing like a brand new cause because you have the originator's passion and vigor and the, uh, the need to stay alive to prove the idea. So you have, uh, you, you have inspiration and survival uh, all mixed together. So it, it forms an enormous uh, burst of, uh, of energy and joy. And, and with the original donors, you celebrate the... Uh, Staying alive, and you celebrate the victories, and everyone's in it together. Whereas a big, large organization, uh, it's more of an MBA operation. Uh, you know, chugging along. There's a CFO. There's this. There's that. Uh, it, you know, it it, it sort of uh, takes some of the joy off the uh, off the place. Inspiration, passion, energy, joy. The survival. Survival. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Roger, where can uh, where can people find the agitator on on the web? www.theagitator.net. Love it. Thank you very much, Roger Craver, the agitator. Thanks, Tony. My pleasure. Thank you for loving fundraising fundamentals. I urge you check out Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Roger has been a guest there as well. It's big nonprofit ideas for the other ninety five percent. It's my weekly one-hour podcast going way beyond fundraising to help you with all the issues small and mid-sized shops struggle with. Social media, board relations, marketing communications, technology, volunteer management, events, and all the fundraising topics. 
I've got over 10,000 listeners each week. Info is on iTunes and at TonyMartinetti.com. Be with me next month for Fundraising Fundamentals.